Tonight we're going to be hearing from two wonderful speakers. Uh, Greg Raduca, right here, has got a lot of letters following his name. I won't read all of them. He's very credentialed. He's the executive director and CEO of Let's Get Clear Georgia. He helped to design and implement the first adolescent chemical dependency treatment program at Ridgeview Institute in Cobb County. He's helped thousands of families and children and youth since 1987. He's received his PhD in human development from the University of Maryland Institute of Child Study. He's a licensed professional counselor. He's an internationally certified prevention specialist. He has closely followed Georgia's marijuana legislation since 2014 and has been a leader in advocating for the protection of all Georgia children and adults from marijuana and other drug use. This is going to be very relevant. Doreen is a board member of Let's Get Clear Georgia and in 2015 she lost her son Ryan to fentanyl which had uh, been preceded by marijuana use. So she's going to share her journey on that. She has a new mission now in drug education and awareness through her nonprofit organization in Ryan's name. That was her son's name. She's also a member of Moms Strong and serves as the RX Drug Team Committee Chair with Drug Free Fayette. She was invited by the Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr to serve on the State Opioid Task Force. So they are both going to be sharing uh, their journeys about marijuana, opioids, addiction, so forth and so on. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then Doreen, I'm going to invite you up. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for Greg and Doreen and their willingness to come out tonight and share what they've learned over the years through personal experience, wisdom, research, and study, God. We just pray tonight that we will be given nuggets of hope and encouragement, that we'll be educated, and that we'll leave here more knowledgeable about the issues that we're facing in this state in this country and around the world from drug use and addiction, Father. We give you this time, we praise you in Jesus' name, and we ask that you'll speak through them in a mighty way. Amen. Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for inviting myself and Greg here tonight. Um, I've learned a lot in the last eight years. I'm the mother of four sons. All four graduated with honors from Stars Mill High School in Fayette County. Um, all four played football in high school. Three of them went on to play college football. I'm also the grandmother of the sweetest little thing there is, four-year-old Jackson Ryan. Um, today I'm here to talk a little bit about my second son, Ryan. He set football records at Stars Mill High School that still stand today. He was a wide receiver in high school. Graduated straight A's. Honor Society. He got a college scholarship to go play football at Bloomsburg University in Pennsylvania. His junior year, he suffered an injury during football and had to have a pin surgically put into his hand. We didn't think too much of it, you know, we were a football family, blood, guts, we're used to all of it. So he had the surgery, everything was fine, he continued to play. His senior year, he dislocated and broke his shoulder didn't think too much of it. He graduated college with his degree in exercise science. He always wanted to own a gym, be a personal trainer. He always had muscles. and So about two years after he graduated college, he came to us and told us that he had a problem. We didn't know it. 
you know, nothing looked out of the ordinary. We lived in Fayette County, Peachtree City, Georgia, in this bubble. You know, good kid. Uh, he came and told us that when he had his first surgery, he was prescribed opioids. They continued to prescribe opioids through his senior year when he had the second injury. He was prescribed opioids for two years. They basically turned my son into a functioning addict. And if you read articles in Sports Illustrated, and this is so common in college sports, college athletics. I get calls from parents all the time that, you know, my, my daughter was a star soccer player. She's in rehab now because she hurt her back and they gave her pain pills. So Ryan came to us and told us he had a problem. We were scared. We suffered every emotion possible. We were scared. We were angry. We were embarrassed. Uh, we didn't know what to do. When you talk about the stigma of drugs and drug addiction, I was the poster child for stigma. I never told my best friend. I never told anyone. When Ryan came to us in 2012, never told my best friend. We only talked about it as a family. I didn't even tell my mom and dad who live in Pennsylvania or my brothers and sisters who all live in Pennsylvania. I never told any of them until it got so bad that I would talk to my mom on the phone and I would start crying. And she'd say, okay, what's wrong? So I finally had to tell her. I didn't want her to be disappointed in Ryan. And then in another aspect, I thought, well, it's Ryan's story to tell. If he wants anyone to know about his problem, it's his story to tell, not mine. I don't know if I was in denial or I was, I was ashamed, I was embarrassed to say that my son was a drug addict. When he came to us, we were scared. We didn't know what to do. We started calling around. We found a rehab facility that we got him into. It was Penfield Christian Homes. It was in North Georgia at the time. That one has since closed down. It was four days before Christmas and we drove him to rehab. Four days before Christmas. And I remember him calling my mom and dad on the phone, saying, I'm going, you know, I'm going to do this. It caused a lot of problems between him and his brothers. I can remember him and his older brother having knocked down drag out fights with him saying, look what you're doing to mom and dad. Look what you're doing to our family. Ryan didn't want to do all of that. When they're on drugs and active addiction, they're two different people. The Ryan that I know and love who's a good kid, had a heart of gold, would do anything for anyone, and then the Ryan on drugs, who would do anything to get his next drug. When he graduated college, he was still taking pills. Because he couldn't get the prescription anymore, he moved to buying his pain pills on the street. Those are $30, $40 a pill. He couldn't afford that for too long, so he moved to heroin. Because it's cheaper, readily available. My son had track marks on his arm and I didn't even notice it. I didn't know. I didn't know what to look for. I never even thought about it. So he went to rehab. Before he could go to rehab, he had to detox. We didn't know any of this. You know, it's not something you sit down and 
Google every day to see, well, what do we do if my son has a problem? Uh, he had to detox at our home. He did that for four days. Let me tell you, he couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep, he threw up, he had diarrhea, he had the sweats, he had the shakes. And he said to me, Mom, when I get clean, I will never use again because once you start, especially with the opioids, you can't stop. Your body craves it. And I look back now and I think, well, yeah, I always saw him with Imodium because when he was trying to stop, he would take it to try and combat the diarrhea and the nausea. I was so uninformed and uneducated about drugs and addiction. And this kills me to this day. When he was detoxing in our home, we had the rule, you know, doors open, there's no privacy. You're in our home, everything's out in the open. I actually went into his room and he would ask me to bring him like hard candies. That's all he could suck on for four days. And I remember shaking him and saying, well, good for you, Ryan. Maybe if you suffer a little bit, you won't do this anymore. Can you imagine that I said that? I did that to my son because I didn't know. I didn't know the hold that addiction has over you. And I look back now and I just think, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. Ryan finished his stint in rehab. Um, I believe it was $6,000 cash we had to take. And um, they didn't accept insurance, didn't accept credit cards. We brought $6,000 cash. I said to my husband, if we need to remortgage our home, we'll do it. If we need to sell furniture, whatever, we'll do it. He completed his stay. And when I remember when we went to go get him, it was the graduation day. And we were so scared because we didn't know what to do when we got him. What do we do now? On one hand, I thought, oh, he's cured. You know, he went through the eight-week program. He's cured. Boy, was that anything but true. When we got there, they asked him to stay an additional three months, free of charge, as a servant leader because he did such a great job. He started a Bible study group there. When all the guys got up to talk about him at his graduation, they called him Bible. And let me tell you, that soothes my heart because I know where Ryan is. I know he's with his Heavenly Father, and I know he's not suffering from addiction, and I know that he believed in Jesus Christ, and I know he wasn't a bad kid. So he completed his rehab, stayed the additional time, came out, and that was the first time that he apologized. He came and gave me a big hug, and he said, Mom, I'm so sorry for everything that I did. It was the old Ryan was back. He went down to New Orleans where he had a job. He was managing a gym. Everything was falling into place. He stayed clean for about a year, and then he relapsed. We had learned through meetings that relapse is part of the recovery process. You know, of opioid users, 97% will relapse at least once. So he relapsed. We took him to another rehab, and it was terrible. It was in South Georgia, and they punished him. Their recovery was based on punishment. They put him in solitary confinement. They made him write the 12 steps for hours every day. 
and I know this is true because I've spoken to a board member of this rehab facility and I've also spoken to two other parents that they did the same thing to their child. Ryan left there after less than a week. They took him to the closest Walmart and dropped him off. No cell phone, no money, no nothing. He couldn't call me because I don't know anybody's cell phone number. You know, you plug it in your phone and you hit a button. I got home from work and there was a message on my cell phone, or on my home phone. Mom, I left, I'm coming home. I called the rehab facility, I'm like, where's Ryan? What's going on? And you wouldn't believe what the gentleman said to me. Lady, your effing son is probably in effing Atlanta getting effing high right now. Yeah, they didn't care. Uh, my husband is a pilot for Delta, so he was gone at the time. It was about six hours later when headlights pulled in my, call, in my driveway and it was a taxi cab. Ryan had convinced a taxi driver to bring him from South Macon to our home and told him, if you do that, my mom will pay you. I paid them, gave him the biggest hug ever, and he said, I can do this on my own, Mom. I can do this on my own. I had faith that he could. And he gave me some signs. He said, if you see that I'm not going to the gym every day and I'm not working out, I'm using. If I'm not eating healthy, I'm using. If I'm falling asleep, I'm using. He told us so many things. We said to him, okay, if you're at our house, there will be random drug tests. Well, let me tell you, they can fake a drug test very easily. There are numerous ways. They carry little uh, travel-sized bottles of shampoo or whatever, clean it out. They put yellow Gatorade or yellow energy drink in it, keep it in their pocket so it's warm. You send them into the bathroom for a drug test, they pass it because nothing comes up on it, but it's not their urine. Oh, we learned a lot of tricks. At first, when Ryan told us, and uh, I quit my job, I thought, I'm going to be home. I'm not going to leave his side. Later, I said, Ryan, how did you still get the drugs? Well, Mom, don't you know drug dealers deliver? Really? Drug dealers deliver. His dealer was from the Bluff area. He would come down, so he knows where we live. He would come to our home. Ryan would put a Ziploc bag out with money, and they would swap it out. Crazy, huh? Things that I never would have thought of. Ryan stayed clean when he came home from that terrible episode for it was about seven months. He got a job up in Atlanta. We weren't really happy with it. Um, it was a bouncer. I said, Ryan, do you really need to be in that position as a bouncer? Well, Mom, I got the muscles and, you know, it's easy money. And it wasn't two weeks later, May 21st, 2015 at 9.42 a.m., my son was pronounced dead. They found him in his car up in the bluffs. No drug paraphernalia, nothing. The autopsy said he had traces of marijuana, heroin, and he was poisoned by a lethal dose of fentanyl. We don't know what happened. You know, all I can think of is he smoked marijuana. It lowered his inhibitions. He also got a text message from his dealer that night. 
hey buddy, haven't seen you in a while, come see me. Even though we changed his people, places, and things, we got him a new cell phone, new cell number. Let me tell you, these people with social media, they will find them. These dealers will find them. All we know is he got a text message, hey buddy, haven't seen you in a while, come see me. He went to the bank, took out $30, went and bought the heroin, and they found him. Uh, no one even bothered to tell me. One of Ryan's friends on social media messaged me that evening. This was 9.42 a.m. He was pronounced dead. They started his autopsy at 10.15, and I still didn't know. No one bothered to tell me. And to this day, I think, did they just think he was a junkie and he didn't matter? When his friend messaged me on Facebook, it was 5.30 that evening. Mama Barr, call me. I called him, and he told me. No sheriffs came, nothing. Was he not important? When I talk to kids at schools, the main thing that I stress to them is, this is my son. Does he look like a drug addict to you? I used to think a drug addict was the homeless guy under the bridge with no teeth, dirty clothes. A drug addict can be sitting right next to you and you don't know it. Addiction does not discriminate. It can happen to rich, poor, black, white. It does not discriminate. When I talked about stigma, the first time I told anyone outside my family, my best friend, was May 21st, 2015, when I was by myself at home and I had to call my best friend, screaming and crying and asking her to please come over to the house because Ryan was dead. That was the first time I told anybody. You know, there's so many what ifs. What if I had talked to somebody? What if I had told someone? What if, you know, what if? We don't know. Uh, they got his dealer through his cell phone. He took a plea deal for six years in federal prison. Otherwise, they said they would charge him with murder. His, uh, um, his attorney said that he was selling to support his own habit. He was a 19-year-old, fourth-grade education punk, lived on the streets. And my question was, if he was selling these drugs to support his own drug habit, did he know what was good and what was bad? Why did my son get fentanyl, and why did he not give himself fentanyl? Took a six-year plea deal. He was released in three years. Amazing. And they said he was released because he did a uh, drug course in jail and good behavior. Three years. I tried to turn this into something that could try and maybe heal my heart, heal our family. And that's why I started in Ryan's name. To this day, we've helped three people. We've, we've only been a nonprofit. It was a year in June. We've helped three people get into rehab. One, I drove there myself because his parents threw him out of the house when they found out he had a problem. And he reached out to us. We drove him to Penfield. He did his stint, and he is one year and one month clean. He texts me every day how many days clean he is. When I go into schools and I talk to kids and I talk to parents, I tell them, you have to know what's going on. You need to be in charge of your body. If you get your wisdom teeth out 
Ask that doctor, what are you prescribing me? Is it addictive? If it is, give me something else. The football players, the soccer players, if you get injured, you need to ask, what are you giving me? And is it addictive? You need to be in control of yourself. This fentanyl, let me tell you, fentanyl, you can't see it, you can't smell it, you can't taste it. The size of a grain of salt is enough to kill you. You don't know what it's in. I partnered with a DEA agent and he brought two pills one day when we did a presentation, Xanax pills. And he said, okay, you want this one or you want this one? And I said, I'll take this one. He said, you just died because that was laced with fentanyl. You don't know, these kids don't know. I'll go and I'll say to them, how many of you have heard of fentanyl? And maybe out of a class of 30 kids, two of them will raise their hand. And it's like, my God, you need to know this. Back to the marijuana. They're finding fentanyl in marijuana. One time can kill. One time can kill. And these kids don't know. Uh, the big thing at one of our schools now is uh, pill parties. They rob the medicine cabinets. That's why we need to keep everything locked up. Get a, a safe, get a pill box, keep your medications locked up. They grab everything they can out of friends, grandparents, relatives, medicine cabinets. They meet at a house, they pour all the pills in a bowl and mix it up and they start taking them. Our chief of police was amazed. She's like, they're called pill parties. They have no idea what they're taking. I guess it's fun. I can name 17 students with, between two high schools, one my son's and the other one in town there. 17 students that have died from overdose. One was a Georgia Tech graduate, captain of the swim team. He was celebrating his Georgia Tech graduation and Cinco de Mayo. He did a line of cocaine. They found him the next morning, it was laced with fentanyl. Here's another example I tell the kids. Let's all go on a field trip. Let's go to Mercedes-Benz Stadium. It holds 72,400 people. Bring your friends, bring your families, bring everybody. We're going on a monster field trip. Once everybody's in there, we lock the doors and we kill them all. 74,200 people is how many people we lost to overdoses in 2017. 74,000. And nobody talks about it. The Vietnam War went on for 19 years. We lost 62,000 men and women in that war. 62,000. We've lost more than that in one year to drug overdose. And nobody talks about it. I won't stand by and be silent anymore. Stigma is gone. I know who Ryan was. If parents and kids knew, I say to the kids, do you think my Ryan thought he was going to die that day? No. Mm -mm. He smoked some marijuana. Maybe it lowered his inhibitions. And he probably thought, I'm going to use one more time. And that one more time was the last. All I can say is... Ryan didn't die in vain. Um, his brothers have been affected. Our youngest son, let me give you an example of college sports. Our youngest son got a full ride scholarship to an ACC school. 
Three months after Ryan died from an overdose and all of his coaches knew, they sent my son to talk to the team psychologist. We didn't know at the time, he didn't tell us. The doctor prescribed him Ambien so he could sleep. College kid, Ambien, washing it down with a beer, are you kidding me? Oh, that's not the worst of it. Uh, it was, I believe it was September of that same year, 2015. They were playing Clemson. Alex broke his ankle during the Clemson game. The team doctor called us into the field house after the game, showed us the x-rays, he may need surgery, we're not sure. As we get up to go, you know, the boot cast and everything, he says, here Barr, here's some pain pills for you. In a white envelope, not in a prescription bottle, didn't have his name on it, we didn't even know what it was. And I looked at him and I said, are you kidding me? So he took it from Alex and gave it to me. And he said, I guess I'll give these to your mom. And I said, no, you won't. We don't need them. What if we weren't there and Alex took those pills and put them in his truck? What if he got pulled over? He'd be in jail. This goes on all the time in college sports. After he was finished playing, he graduated uh, 2016. He told us how before the games, they would inject their knees with painkillers, uh, numbing agents, so they wouldn't have pain during the game. Do they bother to ask the parents, is that okay? No. These kids have to be informed and know what's going on, especially with the fentanyl. Be in control of their body. No, I won't take that. No, you can't do that. If all I can say about Ryan and our foundation is if we can help one person through drug education, awareness, prevention, recovery, then we are a success. I have one thing that I want to read. Oh, also, Narcan. Uh, another girl, Jean, who was supposed to come and talk tonight, she and I were instrumental in getting this. Our Board of Education voted down to not carry Narcan, the opioid reversal in our schools. And we went and spoke and said, if it's a matter of money, my foundation will pay for it. But it's just like having a defibrillator in your school. If you need it, it's there. Um, after we spoke, a board member contacted me and said, we need it. I brought Ryan's picture and I said, how dare you tell any parent that their child is not worth having Narcan in the schools? It's easy. You know, they either have the nasal spray or they have the little like EpiPen injection. And now with the Georgia, the 911, that you can call, call for help and you won't be punished. Don't leave someone there. Uh, this is my quote that I tell kids at the end of my presentation. You are worth more than you know. You are capable of more than you think and loved more than you could ever imagine. And I tell them, if you don't think something happening to you would impact your mother, your father, your sisters, your brothers, your grandparents, my dad was 86 when I had to call him and tell him that Ryan was dead. And he just kept crying over the phone saying, it should have been me, it should have been me. It has an impact. Your actions affect 
not just you, but everyone around you.